Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's to God's holy people. It says in Ephesus, I think the commentators will tell you that some of the early manuscripts are not completely clear whether Ephesus is in all of them, but it at least went to Ephesus. It might have been circulated to some other people as well. But to God's holy people, the faithful in Christ, and it is primarily uh, to the Gentiles. That will actually come up in our passage uh, in a minute. When was it written? Uh, Around 60 AD. It's quite likely that it's at the same sort of time as Colossians, because it certainly mentions Tychicus at the end. Uh, Very likely uh, around that date. Where was Paul? Uh, Most likely in prison in Rome. If you skim ahead to 313, there is at least a strong hint of his current sufferings. And we know that Paul uh, did spend a good bit of time in prison. That's where he was most likely to be. Why was it written? To encourage the Gentile believers. That was one thing. But uh, to show the Jews and the Gentiles who, from their roots, were rather different people and didn't necessarily like each other, but to show that they could be one in Christ. And later in the book, to remind them of God's moral law which either these Gentiles didn't know very well or they were just a bit lax in following it. And it's worth um, chipping in, although it's not on the slide, that uh, Ephesus was, uh, there was this massive temple of Diana or Artemis and almost like a cult-like practices dominant in the town. So it may be more relevant to what's coming in other passages, but this was a people who, although they might have just come to Christ, they were very afraid of other powers Uh, And they thought if they did this, very afraid of other things. And uh, how important that they were able to see how great God and Jesus was in that context. And then a brief understanding of how it splits up. Uh, 1 verse 3 through to 2 verse 10 is about new life in Christ. These are very broad divisions. Then the next section is about God's new community. And it does talk about Jews and Gentiles. You'll see at the end of chapter 2, there's a lot more detail on Jew and Gentile being reconciled through Christ. The new standards that God expects in chapter 4, verse 1 onwards. And some of the end of this you know very well, various relationships and how they're affected. And most of you will know about the armor of God, won't you, in Ephesians 6, the fact that we are in a battle. We wish we weren't. We wish it wasn't like that, but we are, and we need to be aware and be on our guard. So that's a, just a, a rough idea where what the book is about. Now, what I want to do today, I'm focusing on chapter 1, verses 11 through to 14. And I've given you some slightly cryptic titles there, but I hope they'll come clear as I go through. Whose we are, how did we become so, and why did we become so? So first, whose we are, and who is the we? And you notice in verse 11, it starts, In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his will. goes on a bit. But then verse 13, and you also. So he's talking to the Gentiles, but Paul himself was a Jew, 
And this is very much, uh, it started with us, in fact I missed out the bit, it, in order that we, verse 12, who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, and you also. All right, so that is, the we is, is important because it, it, it means one thing early on, but it's, it's being broadened out in this lovely way to include the Gentiles. Now most of us don't have Jewish roots. This is how we got our gospel. This is how we got our faith. And it was just wonderful that although for many, many years this was to the people of Israel, the Jewish people, the gospel was advancing and it started to go to very, very different people. So the words that used to be used for one nation of Israel, they're now reapplied to an international people who have Christ in common. Now, Ben reminded us how many times, and it's even worth a glimpse, isn't it, in him, or in those first few verses, not just in what we're looking at today, uh, but looking verse 3 onwards, just picking a few of them, chose us in him before the creation of the world um, to the praise of his glory, which he's freely given us. And in him we have redemption that he lavished on us with all he made known to the mystery of his will to be put in effect. In verse 11, in him we were chosen. There are so many things that are in Christ or in him, and it's because of that that we have this wonderful standing in Christ. So then, that's the we. It is exciting to see how it broadens to include the Gentiles, and we're glad of that. But it's a lovely theme, isn't it, that people who are so um, not alone in Christ... And we're familiar in this church with people from uh, so many different cultures, but united in Christ. So let's get into uh, verse 11. And there is a tricky bit to start with on how some of this is translated. Do you remember Ben told you that actually these first, from verse 3, I think, right through to 14, this was all one big long sentence? And it came out in such a burst of enthusiasm. I, don't, I think normally people writing this down would put punctuation in. I think it didn't have any much of that. So for the translators, it just gives them a few extra problems on what it means. Because that, this says in the NIV, in him we were also chosen. But just to confuse you, if you look in the New American Standard, which is usually very uh, literal, it actually says we've obtained an inheritance. So we're just getting a little bit of what this means. Uh, the original word is a Greek one. Not that I'm a scholar, but I'll tell you what I found out. Um, but this, th- this word could mean either to give or to receive an inheritance. So you have to just switch on your brains and think, well, which is it? Um, whose inheritance? Is it ours, a gift that we have received, which is really what the NASB says, we have obtained an inheritance, or is it God's because he has taken us to be his own? Now, later on in our passage, we are definitely talking about our inheritance, but I think the, the latter of these is a bit more supported by other places in the Bible. Um, it's more natural translation. That's a scholar's comment, not that I am um, one of those. But you know some of these Old Testament passages. For the Lord, Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is allotted inheritance. That's in Deuteronomy. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord people he chose for his inheritance. Isn't it lovely to think how God, I mean, you know some of these verses, but just to bring it to mind, that God, though he's so great, he's thinking about us, his, this faulty people that we are, and he's, looking, he's working in us, changing us, and he's looking forward to 
an inheritance that is us, the church. And then the second one, on the, on the, under the same subject of whose we are, this is a little bit... Well, no, actually, it's a similar, similar problem with the translation because there's not so much punctuation. Until the redemption of those who are God's possession, that's actually jumping forward to verse 14. But again, it's not, um, it's not completely clear whether it is this ours until we acquire possession of our inheritance or is it God's um, that we are his possession. And again, the latter has more support in the Bible there's one in Deuteronomy. The Lord has declared that you're his people, his treasured possession. And you know that one in the New Testament. You are a chosen people, God's special possession, that you may declare his praises. You know that verse, I'm sure. So, not completely dogmatic, because there is a, a, a little difficulty in translating it, but it does seem likely that, that this is in this part, of the early part of verse 11 and, and in that part of verse 14, this is God talking about us as his. So just think for a minute, us as his. Does that mean anything to you? Does that encourage you? Such great love for us. It, it makes me just pause to ask the question, how do I respond? How do we respond? Such great love, I mean... For one thing, it, 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 we might come up, well, we will come at this later. There's a sense of being safe because we're his. So if anyone tries to take us, you know, we've got someone pretty strong who's saying, that's mine, he's mine, she's mine. Um, just a couple of uh, quotes from songs uh, that I like. Sometimes I listen to these in the car. I can't resist getting a bit of casting crowns in somewhere. Um, but the question, uh, just in this one, who am I? Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt? And then it goes on through lots of other lines. But at the end of uh, the crucial bit, it says, and you've told me who I am, I am yours. And I thought, when I first went through this, I thought, that's not quite answering the question, because if you're looking at it very literally. But actually, it, it, if you unpack it a bit more, it, it is exactly right. I am yours, you can go back into what we just touched on, um, that I'm your son, your daughter, I am yours. Just, I, I only put that on because it just reminds me to be humbled. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name um, and to declare that, that I am him? And another song which I've been playing endlessly to myself when I drove to and from London... This actually isn't Casting Crowns, you'll be pleased to hear. This is actually by Fatfish and Lou Fellingham. But I just, it's just a way of drawing my heart into praise. I was in your eyes before... This is, this is really talking about predestination in rather personal language. I was in your eyes before I had ever given light. You designed my life, planning every day. I was your delight. And through each battle I face, there sounds an anthem of grace. Come on, my boy... Come on, my girl, I hear your voice now cheering out for me. The Father's calling lifts my eyes to see your pleasure over me. So just to bring something home to the heart here, we are God's inheritance, his people, his possession, and just to get a glimpse, really, of his pleasure over us. 
I've gone and hit the wrong button here. What have I done? Escape. Yeah, how's that? That's all right. Okay, so that was the whose we are, God's. Now, the next question is, how did we become God's people? In my introduction, it said, how, how did we become so? How did we become God's people now that we've established that that's exactly who we are? And, of course, what this, what this verse is telling us in verse 11 is that it's by the will of God. Having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. But actually, verse 5, going back to what Ben was dealing with, it's, it's, it's all through this passage. Um, he predestined us for adoption in accordance with his pleasure and will. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to... And verse 11, he works out everything in a conformity to his will. So th- this is just reminding us, and, and, and it's, it's reinforcing what Ben was talking about, that, that unless God wills that to, to, to make us alive and direct us, we, we're going nowhere. Um, but I hasten to add that although God has to start it, there are things for us to do, and it is in, in these verses. You, you hear the message. Where's that? In verse... 13, you believed, also in 13, and then it talks about being marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, and that's something we receive. So in many ways, to our perception, we remember hearing a message, we remember believing, we remember receiving something. But before it all, it's spelled out here that this is the will of God. This is God's pleasure that we can be drawn to him. So now let's just uh, look ahead there at the Holy Spirit. And I'll just reread the, the last few verses there. It says, You were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, gospel of your salvation, when you believed. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So think for a minute about, there are actually two or three, th- there are three things said about the Holy Spirit here. The first is uh, a seal, that he is, we are marked in him with a seal. Now this is language we're not ever so familiar with, but you probably can imagine people with cattle branding them with a, with a mark. And it's, it's something that talks about ownership. I've put up a verse there in 2 Corinthians uh, that also talks about setting his seal of, but it actually spells out that it's to do with ownership. He set his seal of ownership on us. And if nothing else, in this other realms of, of uh, where there are evil powers w- at work and we are vulnerable and, and prone to attack, w- what a wonderful thought that God has set his seal on us. This isn't a visible one like you might brand on some cattle. It's an inward one. But a seal of ownership that says to the world uh, that I belong to God. That's what being holy is all about, being set apart for God. So the Holy Spirit is a seal of ownership. He's also come as promised. Uh, Many Old Testament passages talk about this, but we come across in in Acts 2. You you remember that lovely sermon that Paul preached and how many thousand people came to him. But somewhere towards the end of that, there were 
you remember there was speaking in other languages and tongues and some of the people were saying you know these people are drunk too much wine and, and Peter stands up he says no these people are not drunk this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in these last days God says I will pour out my spirit on all people so this is the spirit who was promised and Ezekiel tells us uh, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees so the spirit is given as a seal he's given as promised but also as a guarantee and the word the Greek word arabon it's in, in ancient transactions it signifies like a down payment in modern Greek, I believe this is used for, it's a word for an engagement ring. Now that's a different, I mean, there are, there are things to think about on how these are different. An engagement ring is a betrothal, it's a commitment to, between a couple, we are going to get married, but it actually hasn't started until they, they, they are living together. Um, but of course there is another kind of thing where you put down a down payment and actually you are getting part of what is to come. And that is really what this one is, that God gives us his spirit, a guarantee. Um, and it's not just guaranteeing, but it's actually a foretaste. And, and many of us will know when we're uh, just, just the, the fact that his presence is in us, he's changing us. We have a taste. And when we meet together and, and, and praise him, we have a taste of what heaven will be like. We still have to face all the challenges of daily life, but we have a taste now. But a guarantee, this is certain, our future, absolutely certain, guaranteed, because of the Holy Spirit. So all this is the how, by the will of God, and he gives us his spirit as a seal, as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. Yeah. So, just since we are the deposit guarantees an inheritance we need to just reflect on that earlier on we were thinking about us being God's inheritance but now we are talking about our inheritance and I just thought I'd remind you in 1 Peter you, you think about things you might dream of inheriting in this world someone's big mansion someone's super yacht I don't know what you might like um, but even the, even the big yacht you might do you might then go out and crash it into something bad and lose your inheritance uh, and that, that kind of thing, it might last a while, but it can, it can spoil, it can fade. But this is an inheritance, Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 1, it's an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. And that's us being taken to be with God forever. Uh, I haven't looked up the verses, what is it? You know, no eye has seen, no, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. There are all kinds of verses that just remind us how God has rich things in store for his people. And I will look up, just to read a bit more of this, in Revelation 21. Because this is talking about our future inheritance. And I just want to read verses 3 to 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed. 
He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God coming to dwell with us. Without the need for mediation, the unmediated presence of God, that's what our future is. And no sin, no sadness, no battles, no none of those things which make us sad. So that's the, uh, the, the how, talking about the spirit and actually a little focus on what that inheritance is. And then uh, my third heading, I gave you the cryptic one, why did God make us his people? You might have to think about that. Why did God make us his people? But really, uh, the phrase has come through several times in what we've been looking at, to the praise of his glory. You notice that? You look back in, in what Ben was dealing with in Ephesians 1. Who can shout out the first time they see that in, in Ephesians 1? Whilst I just go back and find my Ephesians 1. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, yes. So let me, I've sparked a thought, but I just want to give, seeing where my slide was going, I just want to give you, so, so this is about giving glory and praise to God. Now what about some Old Testament background that, that would make us think in this direction? And I just pulled this verse from Ezekiel. And let me just read this one out. Um, this is to do with God and the nations. This is, a, this is at a time when God's people were in exile and in humiliation, in disgrace, but God is taking action to uh, give them back their land, to, to drive out people who were in their land. He's going to restore them. So therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So this just establishes, and you, you will know it from the stories you know in the Old Testament, how God, the honor of God's name among the nations was a very important theme. And God... Was, was, uh, wanted to, to gain glory for himself. He deserves it all, but that's there in the Old Testament. But notice there is a similar theme in Ephesians 1. We touched on verse 5, chosen to be holy and blameless and adopted to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And... In verse 14, having talked about the Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the full redemption, again, to the praise of his glory. So God's eternal purpose is that we glorify his name so that the rulers all... And this is interesting to, to touch on. Um, if you turn over to 3 verse 10... Because it is an unusual thing in Ephesians. Three times, actually, it talks about heavenly places in, 
in Ephesians. One is that we're blessed in the heavenly realms. Another one is that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. But 3 verse 10, and this gives you a little bit more of an idea. What's the purpose of, of us praising God and, and being the church and changing? 3 verse 10, his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose. So through the church, through its life, through him changing us to be more like him, through our praise, the church is on display in the area where the spirits, the evil spirits work, where the devil is at work, and, and the church is a powerful thing. We might feel very weak, very ineffective. We might think all those things. But when, when the devil sees changed people who are loving God and living in his way, this is the church on display, and the devil is fearful of this. Isn't that a lovely thought? Um, but we don't get too many glimpses in the Bible um, into those heavenly realms, what's going on in the spirit world between God and the devil. But I just wanted to also draw attention to one that there is in Job chapter 1. If you, haven't, if, you don't, if, you, if you don't know this, just find Job. It's just before Psalms, I think. Job chapter 1. And there's, a, there's this, it's almost like a wager and a discussion. You're overhearing, you're allowed to overhear the discussion between God and the devil. And, and God says, you see that man Job down there, that righteous and blameless man, upright? Have you considered him? And the devil says to him, does Job fear God for nothing? And then he goes on to say, you know, he's got a hedge around him, everything's good for him, he's blessed. Well, why wouldn't he? And, and so it, it goes on, you could almost sum it up by saying, the devil is, is taunting God, saying, God, no one will serve you simply because you're good and wonderful. You have to bribe them. So the, then you know the story of Job, that God says, okay, I want you to spare his life, but you can take, he gives the devil a limited freedom to take all kinds of things from him. And we know the story of how Job has a, a very difficult passage through life, very, a lot of hardship. But the question that, that, that is coming from this is if God can recreate a people dead in their trespasses and sins who will freely love him and glorify his name for no other reason than that he's truly worthy. If so, those people will be to the praise of his glory. So that's what God is doing. Um, he doesn't deal with enemies. I mean, in, in the final thing, God will deal with the devil once and for all. But along the way, he's not forcing any of us to worship him. He's inviting us, and he wants, and when people of their own free will are praising him, the devil hates it. Of, of our own free will, we're actually praising God. The devil hates it. So let me just sum up, and then we've, we'll, we'll sing one more song and then a little bit of open prayer before I hand over to Phil. But summing up, we are God's inheritance God's possession. We have a glorious future. This is all by his will, though we heard and believed the message. We're given the Holy Spirit. What a precious thing that is, deep in us. Gives us assurance, doesn't it? 
marked with a seal, set out and marked as God's, and a guarantee that he will bring us into that eternal life with him, that we might be for the praise of his glory. Glory is a, is a sense, there's a weightiness about glory. God's glory is a weightiness um, for the praise of his glory. Now, the challenge is, just a couple of things to say here. One, and I hope I've encouraged you to do it, just to bask in this devoted love of God for us. Bask in it. Think about it. Um, let it overcome you. It, it's a good thing. But then the, the other thing, we talked about the, the, two, the, the second two items I had. It was about how we are and, and why. Uh, and we talked about it being God's will and the fact that we're going to be to the praise of his glory. But of course, in our culture, this is all about our will. Everything is about my choices, what I do, what I want to do. And everyone out there celebrates when you go shopping. You have an endless amount of choice. And of course, we also, if you look a typical glimpse on the world, we want the glory. Whether you're looking in an office environment or something else, we want to be seen as significant. We seek the praise of others. That's a natural thing in humankind. But this is so opposed to that. This is saying your will isn't at the center. God's will is. He's the one who, who called you, even though you may be aware you made some choices along the way. God's will is at the center, and we are not to live for our own glory, for our own puffing up, but to live for the praise of his glory. So let's make war in the heavenly realms with our praise. That's where I want to leave that. Thank you. So...